Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. My name is Charlotte Epstein, and I am an associate professor in the Department of Government and International Relations, and it is a great honor to be welcoming you here tonight um, to this event. We come together tonight to discuss what is perhaps one of the stickiest, thorniest issues of our time upon a place that has for centuries been a meeting place for the exchange of ideas and knowledge and long before it became this university. Hence, I would like to open our coming together by paying my respects to the Gadigal people of the Eora nation, to their elders past and present, and by acknowledging that on the eve of a total fire ban in New South Wales, we have a lot to learn from one of the longest continuing cultures on earth, one that has already known how to adapt to considerable climatic transformations. Indeed, we have a lot to learn from recognizing their ancestral custodianship of this land as a genuine and indispensable form of sovereignty at exactly the point where the alternative form of sovereignty, the one that is bound up with, I quote, the mastery and possession of nature, in the words of René Descartes, one of the founding fathers of our modern world, has well and truly reached its limits. So, I would now like to introduce our participants uh, to this panel tonight. First of all, we will be hearing from Professor Ole Weaver. Ole Weaver is a professor of international relations at the Department of, Political, Department of Political Science, University of Copenhagen. And we have been lucky enough to have him with us for the whole semester as a, and bear with me because this is a mouthful, Sydney Social Science and Humanities Advanced Research Center, James Fellow. Ole has founded and directed not just one, but two uh, centers on international conflict and security. The current one that he directs is uh, the Center for Resolution of International Conflicts, Creek. Ole's publications are simply too numerous to detail. Uh, he is one of the most prominent scholars in the discipline of international relations. So to introduce him, I will focus on two of the areas for which he is most known. The first is that he is really uh, the scholar who has founded the sociology of the discipline and this reflective move that I, international relations um, has taken by looking at itself. He has properly carved it out as a new field of research. But perhaps the most um, famous, what he is most famous for is the ways in which he has opened the concept of security. Um, with a theory that is known as securitization theory, knowing that security is well and truly one of the founding concepts of the discipline of international relations, and this because it was one of the central preoccupations of all states. So he is well placed to address the question we are considering tonight, namely the question of whether climate change is readily or not considered a security issue. Ole was also elected by his peers to the Danish Royal Academy of Sciences and Letters in 2007. And indeed, because they do things properly in Denmark, he was knighted for his contribution to the advancement of knowledge. So, um, so Ole will be our keynote speaker tonight, but he is also accompanied, uh, and we will be having a conversation with Jess Miller. And Jess Miller is a councillor with the city of Sydney. She was elected to this position in 2016 and served as Deputy Lord Mayor from 2017 to 2018. She is currently Deputy Chair of the Environmental Committee and the Cycling Advisory Committee. And she also, is a busy person, runs a national urban forestry program. Uh, relevant also to our topic is that before entering politics, Jess has a long background in environmental activism, so also has a lot to say. Last but certainly not least is Olivia Arkell. Um, Olivia is a fourth year law student uh, with us here at the University of Sydney. 
She's a paralegal as well, and president of the Sydney University's Waste Fighter Society, which has managed to bring together over 300 members, um, and indeed aims to make uh, sustainable action accessible. The society has organized over 15 events this year, including a campus swap, a campus clothes swap, and a collaboration with Oz Harvest, the Inner West Council, and Clean Up Australia. She comes tonight to talk to represent the student's voice and as an advocate of practical and positive action. So without further ado, I will invite uh, Professor Weiser to speak to us tonight. And thank you, Charlotte, for that fabulous introduction. Uh, I'll treasure that. With a theme like this tonight, I'm not going to do any roundabout uh, introduction. I'll get right into it. Uh, and furthermore, with a theme like the one here, climate change and security issue, we'll surely be accused of being doomsayers and fear mongers. Uh, and to face up to that, I'll start exactly there with doomsday. Um, so, um, some of you may be familiar with this doomsday clock, and the story that I'm going to tell with this one uh, will be by taking us back to 2007 first, because in 2007 is the year, in my view, where our theme of climate as a security issue um, started to become widely accepted. Three examples of that uh, would be what I'm going to talk about in a second, this very doomsday clock, uh, which is a doomsday clock produced by the bulletin of the atomic scientists. So we see we're into nuclear weapons and linking that to uh, climate change. At 2007, we also had for the first time a meeting of the United Nations Security Council uh, talking about climate change as a security issue. And it was the year when the Nobel Peace Prize was given to Al Gore and the IPCC for their work on climate change. I'm going to get back to the Security Council, not saying anything about the Nobel Prize, uh, and starting out with the doomsday clock. The Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists was founded in 1945 by some of the uh, scientists that had been involved in developing the nuclear bomb, some of the critical ones who worried about what they have done and worried about the role of natural science and uh, technologies and the risks posed by that. So it's a journal published by on the critical wing in some sense, uh, but also with a very narrow security focus. So compared to what we're going to talk about, about talking about wider, different kinds of new security issues, we're starting out with people here who have been working on the very narrow conception of security, not only military, but actually nuclear weapons is what it's all about. They had a clever idea, very, very effective communication in 1947 to create this doomsday clock of telling us how many minutes are we away from doomsday. And it started out with seven minutes, and as the Cold War intensified, we got out to two minutes from midnight. And then as the Cold War ended, as you can see, we moved to happier days. And then it's been going the wrong way ever since. Uh, and what is interesting here, in 2007, uh, for the first time, they admitted that anything else but nuclear weapons could be what would really make us in eventually. So at that time, when they had the annual meeting of announcing where the clock was, it was moved to five minutes to midnight. Uh, and the statement that they came up with said that there were two major sources of catastrophe, one being obviously nuclear weapons and the other being climate change. They rightly noticed at the time we stand at the brink of a second nuclear age. That has proven very true, that nuclear weapons are much more of a danger now than it was then. I would be happy to give another talk about that one day. Um, but then, interestingly for tonight, they moved on to say that the dangers posed by climate change are nearly as dire as those posed by nuclear weapons. And over the coming decades, this could cause irremediable harm to the habitats upon which human societies depend for survival. So clearly, depicting climate change as a security issue. 
Just before I now go into the substance, I'll just update you and to keep everyone happy to tell that since then the clock has moved on to two minutes to midnight. Um, so that's where we are now, just to be aware of the general picture. Having introduced this, I have in a sense also given my main message already, that I'm going to talk about climate change as a security issue in two different ways. And this is my overall argument that I hope will make it easier to see where I'm going when I'm getting out to all kinds of other corners. I'm talking about climate security in two conceptual ways that also have different political implications. One is that we might be thinking about what probably most people will think when they hear about this issue, the possibility that climate change eventually leads to war. But as was implied in the statement from the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, they were really saying something else. They were saying climate change is now the big threat in itself, the biggest threat we face. So I'm going to explore those two logics, saying what does it mean if we think about climate change as leading to war? What policy implications will that have? Contra, if we think about climate change as a issue in itself, what will we do then? If we think about the causal one of it leading to war, typically that points in the direction of preparing for that, knowing what conflicts we're facing and so on. Whereas the one about depicting climate change as a threat clearly is a way of saying this is the issue we have to deal with. We have to deal with it politically and we have to deal with it in a special, urgent, upfront, more important than everything else way. So in a sense, we are seeing here the classical distinction between adaptation and mitigation. One of them, as we talk about in climate change in other contexts, one is to adapt to the fact that we are having climate change by preparing for those wars that are coming. And the other is to say, how can we avoid going there altogether? So this is the structure of what I'm going to say here. Start out by the first one. Does climate change actually cause war? Uh, and then... If so, where does that point to? Where does this whole agenda point to? And the other one being, if climate change is the biggest threat we are facing, what does that mean? What kind of policies will that lead to? And is it a good idea that we think about it as a security issue? Is that a way of solving it or a way of making everything worse? But first, I'd like to go a little more into the, the conceptual background of this whole idea of two different kinds of climate security. So this is the first of two little excursions into my own theoretical field that Charlotte already pointed to, security studies, securitization, and all that. Since the 1980s, we have had in the field of security studies a general discussion about the concept of security, about the limits of thinking in traditional ways about national security that the traditional concept of national security was problematic. And it was problematized for two reasons. One was, why do we only talk about national security? Why only states? There can be many other levels, many other places to place the security problem than with states. And why only military security? It could be equally serious to have, have starvation as a source of, of, of threat, or you can see security action on behalf of groups because their identities are threatened. We have to deal with other kinds of security issues. And one could say that the whole agenda we've had has looked more or less like that. There's been a discussion about widening security in two directions. We could widen into environmental, economic, political, societal issues beyond the military ones, or we could widen in the sense of saying it's not only about nations, it's also regional or global, it's groups, it's individuals. In that whole discussion, one thing that has often been overlooked, even by all the scholars who have written thousands of, of articles and books about this, is that really we are talking about two different ways of widening. One is to say there's a link to classical security. We also want to look at identity, or we also want to look at climate, because it can cause military conflict. So for, that's the agenda about saying climate change leads to violent conflict, or identity issues lead to violent conflict. And another way of widening is to say, but there are other things that are threatening as much as military conflict. This is 
a crucial difference between because the first one is in many ways the easier one conceptually because the first one really means that ultimately something becomes a security issue for the good old reasons is still when the shot is fired that it becomes a security issue, we just trace back saying, oh, that conflict started by climate change or that conflict started by identity issues. So we extend our causal thinking, but we still have as a definition, as criteria of something becoming a security issue because it leads to military conflict. So in a sense, it's the traditional concept. Whereas the other one is more challenging of saying it's really, uh, there are new ways that things can be a security issue. This also means that, because it's always difficult to think conceptually new, that most of the policy-oriented research in think tanks and so on picked on to the first one, uh, thinking about the, the, the causal link. And it's also what is most kind of hardcore science-y like. Can we prove that there is a causal link from one to the other? But increasingly, if you listen to the broader debate, what is being discussed is really increasingly the second. What does it mean to look about, upon climate change as a security issue? So I'm going to deal with both. And you deal with them slightly differently in the sense that the first one, you, the first question to ask will be, is it true? Is it true that there is a causal link from climate change to security? Whereas with the second one, you increasingly will get the discussion, is it a good idea? Is it a good idea that we treat climate change as a security issue? Will that do good or bad for us? First one could think, try to look directly at, at the link between climate change and violent conflict. And the most hard-hitting argument is if you can prove this statistically. That would be the same way as we want, normally would show links in the area of health or other issues. This is dangerous. You die if you smoke or you do this and you that. The causal link is what carries most weight in argument. So we have people studying these things in our field of international relations, studying quantitative data and saying, can you show that climate change leads to conflict? So that's the study of all kinds of statistics. Uh, and that has at first been relatively difficult. I'll get back to that in a second, but at first it proved quite difficult to show this, which of course doesn't prove that there is not a link, but just that the data maybe don't really fit. Then the other option is to look at cases. That would be to go to fields like anthropology, uh, um, ethnography, um, geography, and say, let's do some case studies of places where we have seen conflict. Famously, people studied a case like Darfur, uh, showing that the Darfur conflict um, could be well argued, it's still controversial, but you could argue that it had to do with climate change in the sense that you would have smallholder farmers who would have been living separately from nomadic pastoralists, and with climate change, their passes would increasingly cross. And given that these groups also had ethnic and religious uh, different background, you got conflicts intensified. You can argue the same about local conflicts in India, Bangladesh, and so on, that people are moved around, and they cross their path, and you get conflicts. That is, of course, not a very... It's not as powerful as a general argument as a statistical one because we don't have similar studies of the cases where we don't get conflict. So we don't know if there's an aggregate link. We can just show it in single cases. Then I think one should maybe pay more attention to the possibilities that we know, it, we know the link through intermediate variables. We know that migration causes violent conflict. That is well established statistically. And we also know that climate change will generate migration. And in that sense, we know that there will be a powerful link. A lot of people will probably assume that the last one here will be the same, that scarcity in general leads to conflict, but that's actually not so clear. The people who have studied that would argue often that that really depends. Uh, sure, climate change will lead to scarcity in various places, but it is not actually uh, necessarily so that it leads to conflict. That depends very much on 
what kind of relationship you have in advance. If you have a good relationship, you might get better at cooperating. If you have a bad relationship, you can get a conflict over it. Just to go briefly back to the statistics, um, those people who have tried to measure and argue that there is a link, there have been, for instance, articles looking at civil war in Africa, arguing that on the basis of just the data, you can show that with one degree increase, you will have a 4.5% increase in civil wars, uh, which will mean uh, uh, quite a significant increase in both the number of conflicts and battle deaths. You can prove something like 400,000 battle deaths by 2030 additional, and then, of course, you have um, secondary effects on societies if you have wars like that. This is a slightly controversial article, but the most comprehensive study done so far was a meta-analysis of, of most major studies that was published in Science in 2013, where um, the authors collected studies from all kinds of different fields, and a bit surprisingly maybe, and I would mostly present it as thought-provoking, not because it's a bit of a mind-boggling what it means. They, they worked at all scales, from global to local, and all time horizons from millennia to hours, uh, looking at everything from crimes to civil wars. But they argued that, on the base, that there was a consistent pattern in that, whether you looked at when, how crime was influenced by temperature changes in cities, or if you looked at the, in, any other scale, you got more or less the same relationship, uh, where one standard deviation would lead to a rise in intergroup conflict per 14%, and then you can easily generate from that. As I said, that one is controversial, uh, so I'm not going to focus on that. I think where I would like to leave us from this part is basically to say the migration argument does it. The argument about migration is compelling enough. We know that climate change is going to lead to migration. Last year, 17 million people had to leave their homes because of climate change. By 2050, it will be at least 150 million. If we're talking three degrees increases, we might get into the billions of people who are not able to live where they used to. Migration is a known effect. And we know that migration leads to violent conflict. So in that sense, the link is really not that difficult to establish. Then, one of the reasons why we maybe don't see it like that in front of us, uh, not the same way as we see the fires or whatever here, we don't see the conflicts here, clearly, most of the places where we are going to have military conflict because of climate change will be in the global south. Most, a lot of it will be in Africa. There will be some in South Asia, maybe Southeast Asia, more than it will be in the more privileged part of the world. So if we talk about this as a security issue for us in the global, in the, in the, uh, in, in the privileged parts of the world, when probably it is indirect, mostly in the sense that we will have pandemics, we will have refugees, we might send our own troops to conflicts, and so on. Whether we will have direct security effects in our own countries is probably for later, but it's still a bit... There's still a possibility of thinking like that. A book like Gwen Dyer's book, Climate Wars, starts out from line one with a scenario of the final collapse of the European Union in 2036 under the stress of mass migration from the southern to the northern members, which is actually not a completely impossible scenario. Southern Europe is really going to be much less uh, well-functioning with the climate change we're talking about. So, at least, just as a footnote, maybe also, uh, maybe one of the reasons why we have all this talk about the, the two degrees limit, um, which originally was a figure of pulled out of thin air, but now we can argue that it actually is a meaningful threshold, that one and a half or two degrees is probably where things really get irreversible, where we get into tipping points. and so, on. So, so now it's actually a meaningful level. But originally, when the two degrees were proposed, it wasn't really based on much. Uh, and you might argue that that might be because it was the most powerful who proposed it at a time when it really was the limit where it only hits them and not us. So the two degrees is, is maybe, uh, in that sense, an understandable level. Rounding off the part on, on the causal link, 
and especially because I now put up the book with the title Climate Wars, I think it's important to not think in terms of climate wars in the sense it is not like we are going to have conflicts that are about climate only. It's not like you can say we have ethnic wars and we have religious wars and we have economic wars and then we will have climate wars, climate change generating a conflict in itself. That is not likely to be the case. It is much more likely that climate change is a factor that makes everything else more difficult. So as with the Darfur example I gave, you have people who have settled in ways, they've had a tense relationship, they had a historical, all kind of reasons to fear each other, but they had settled with people uh, living in, in, in their, their uh, sedentary uh, uh, modes of, uh, of agriculture and having nomadic uh, groups, and they would not cross paths too much. And then when things are scrambled around because of climate change, suddenly these people's paths do, do cross. The same with water conflicts. Uh, it's in places where we, like in the Middle East, where we already have conflicts, that it seems very easy to imagine that the fact that the Middle East is going to be drier uh, with climate change is going to feed into conflicts we already have. So it's not like climate change causes climate wars. It is climate change makes all the other issues more difficult and makes it much more likely that the places where we have reasons for conflict, those reasons will be accelerated. This also means that we can actually look at the world and start imagining where we are going to have what kind of conflicts. Um, and this is indeed what is being done nowadays. Um, I hear it's not that difficult to imagine who would be particularly interested in this. If you are in the business of wars, you of course want to know where will these wars be? So these are things that intelligence services, militaries, etc., have been very much interested in. It's striking how even in the US, even during those presidencies that denied climate change, uh, like the Bush administration and the Trump administration, you still clearly have ongoing Uh, reports and thinking in the intelligence agencies and the military. We've also seen in this country thoughts coming out of the military where it's the, you need to know this stuff if that's your field of work. So clearly, this is being studied by those who are in the field of conflict. This gets me into my final point about this part of it. What does it mean to get this knowledge about climate change and security. Why would you want to know and where does it take us? Well, basically, we have to see that this will be a part of preparing for war. One should never underestimate the power of the dark side. Um, those who have most of the resources, those who have the institutions set up for it, are obviously the militaries. So clearly, if we start to think about climate change and conflict, That is going to, whoever starts the, the, the business for all kind of good reasons, is most likely going to be mobilized mostly by those who are professionals in this area. We will also see less hard-hitting military preparations in the sense of, as we already see now, attempts to defend Europe against migrants coming over uh, the Mediterranean, uh, some of those clearly being climate-induced uh, migrants. So the whole mobilization of um, quasi-military, uh, sometimes non-lethal, sometimes actually legal, lethal message to keep people out of borders is also an effect of knowing who will go where. Then there are slightly more positive versions of trying to say, okay, if we know that there is this link, then let's try to understand those conflicts that are likely to be aggregated by climate change and do something about it. Or let's try to help the most vulnerable countries uh, adapt uh, to um, these climate changes. Um, that was all the first half. Now comes the second half of saying, What if we take the second perspective? What if instead we ask, we don't look at violent conflict as such, we look at the enormity of climate change challenge and see that as the threat we are facing and saying, what does it mean to put that as a security issue? 
That, of course, includes the issue of violent conflict, because that's one of the many effects. But if we take the whole picture, say, what is the climate change is doing, then should we talk about that as in a security mode? So this is, in a sense, the same diagram as this one, just to not confuse too much. Um, and this takes me then into the second bit of theory, which Charlotte already uh, hinted at, my own little theory of securitization, uh, which is a spin-off of the whole discussion about widening security. As part of this widening, what I tried to do was to say, instead of getting into a discussion about can we really settle objectively whether environmental issues are security issues or whether they should be or whether economic issues are more important than this and that? Can we settle whether terrorism is a bigger threat than climate change? Is there a way of doing that? Is that what we mean by the wider concept of security? Or should we rather turn the question upside down and say, what is it we are doing when we are talking about things as a security issue? Why would anyone want to label something as a security issue? What's at stake? What do you gain by doing that? Why is it important to someone to say, this is security issues, and for others to say, no, 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 that's not a security issue. We don't want to go there. What, what is at stake politically in that? And then my observation was that what you achieve by doing that is clearly to elevate something above other issues. So what is, what is at stake in naming things a security issue is to gain the special urgency and priority and exceptional nature of saying this is something that has to be prevented. It's not something we can balance with other issues. It's not so much for education and so much for dealing with the Soviet threat during the Cold War or whatever. No, we had to do, deal with that. We had to solve this problem. So to securitize something, to turn it into a security issue, is to say this is something we have to deal with. And this means if we can't do it with normal measures, it's also okay to use extraordinary measures. So that's why we can go to war. That's why we can keep things secret. That's why we can curtail civil liberties in the fight against terrorism. That's why we can have conscription and so on. It's when something is given a status of saying this overrides everything else. And what I'm trying to say here is clearly also this is both good and bad. I mean, you can get things done, but you're also mandating our defenders to do things that they otherwise wouldn't be able to do. So to securitize, in that sense, is a double-edged sword. And that was also clear. <laughs> That's something funny. OK. Um, ignore the upper line. Um, the, the double worries here is to say that um, what happened uh, in the 1980s, when the widening debate was on, the main issue that was pushed then was environmental security. Environmental security was really the driver of the wider security issue. And at that time, that was resisted for two different reasons. One is the one that most people in my field will, will know, traditional security scholars would say, no, 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 don't widen the concept to these new issues. They're not really as important. We stick to the military concept. And if you widen it like that, everything becomes security. And then it becomes super confusing, and we don't know what to do. No, let's stick to military security. That's what the traditional people will say. But there was actually as much worry coming from the other side. People from the environmental groups would say, yeah, we can see that probably if we call it environmental security, we will get some extra urgency, some, also some legitimacy of being as important as the military issues. But we really don't want to go there because the price paid is the way we get to think about issues will be shaped in a security way about a threat and a defense and us and them. And so that is not really the way to do things. So it's quite striking that in the 1980s, the whole discussion of environmental security predominantly ended as a thanks but no thanks. That environmentalists said, we don't want to phrase our issues as environmental security. Contrast that to today, where it's very clear that the idea of environmental security or climate security is embraced. And that's thought-provoking at least why today we are willing to, to go there and what does that mean. So that is what I'm going to think about in the, in the final part here. What does it mean to cast the climate change as a security issue. If you think about the global war on terror, it's clear the fact that terror was the predominant security threat, country after country would have a white book saying 
terrorism is the biggest security threat, and so on. Therefore, you could have surveillance and limit our civil rights, and so on. And people were happy with, with going there, basically. Now we have the Type 1 climate change security link, and we have the militaries preparing for those conflicts. But what does it mean, the second one, to say climate change is the biggest threat we're facing? What kind of special, extraordinary action is that pointing to? And maybe first, is, is it true that it is securitized? And I would say climate change is very strange compared to other issues and has confused people in, in this field. Because usually you would have this pattern where you have someone securitizing the issue, an audience that accepts or not, and if it's accepted, you would often also have the extraordinary measures. But what is clear with climate change is that Yes, it has been accepted. Even in this country, which has in some ways been one of the most resistant to the issues, in a 2019 poll, people would answer that climate change was the biggest critical threat to Australia's vital interest. Two-thirds would put it like that. So, and in many other parts of the world, the number would be significantly higher. Still, we haven't seen extraordinary action. This makes it politically a kind of wild card. If you have the acceptance, we can do extreme things for this, but we really don't know what to do. It means it's a very open political situation where if someone comes around and says, yes, this is what we're doing, things can change very quickly. What could then be the meaning of securitized solutions to this? Let me give three brief hints before I end up on, on some worrying conclusions. Um, the, the three of the three, the first one is I'm using a Danish text here because it was a statement during the, the COP15 Copenhagen summit, and just to have a little Danish anyway uh, for the fun of it. Uh, we here see James Hansen, uh, then a research director in NASA on, on these things, a very famous guy who was the first to witness to US Congress that climate change was an issue. And he's interviewed here saying the politicians are too slow, we can't afford to wait for politicians, democracy has failed, we are in an emergency situation, it's a compelling necessity, and so on. I don't know how you feel, but for me, that's a kind of, hmm, yes, and, but also slightly worrying. Then where, if not democracy, then what? Um, then as we read on, uh, then it's not so bad. It's really just saying, therefore, I support Greenpeace activists, and uh, therefore, civil disobedience might be, be uh, warranted, and so on. But clearly, the, the, the tone could point in many other directions. So that's the first question. If not democracy, then what? The second uh, extraordinary route is the one I already hinted at, the UN Security Council. And I mentioned that already in 2007, there was a meeting called by the then presidency of the United Kingdom, um, and that was super controversial. Um, at the time, and that's very understandable, most other countries would say, no, 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 this can't be the Security Council. We want it in the General Assembly. We want all countries to have a responsibility. It's not something the Security Council should take control of. And the UK did what they could to, to play it down and also play it up at the same time. So they would say, no, 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 we don't think the Security Council should really do this. But on the other hand, of course, by putting it in the agenda, you're hinting that Maybe it should. Uh, and the, the foreign minister uh, of Britain at the time uh, was on the one hand releasing a big white book saying, making the type one argument about the causal link, which is in this context the less dangerous. But then she gave a speech the day before uh, in the annual Churchill lecture, making the parallel between Churchill and climate change, which of course is to say that just as Churchill was the far-sighted person who could see Nazi Germany and then the Soviet Union and took action, climate change is an issue like that. And the thing with the UN Security Council is thought-provoking, because actually the Security Council has the competence to dealing with this. What is the UN Security Council mandated to do? Its mandate is to deal with whatever it declares to be a threat to international peace and security. And there's no check on that. It's not, it's not like you can take it to court and say you're not allowed to. 
Originally, threats to international peace and security could only be military issues. Then they widened that to being humanitarian disasters. No one else could object to that. Today, if the United, security, United Nations Security Council decided that climate change is a threat to international peace and security, they can make decisions and they can impose them and they can force them upon the rest of the world. There's nothing limiting that. Of course, they haven't done it, and they're not going to do it tomorrow because the same disagreements that run down through our normal negotiations run through, through the UN Security Council as well. But it's just worth thinking about the fact that actually there is nothing preventing them. They could and they might if the situation gets severe enough. And the third form of extraordinary measures is that we start to meddle with the climate system ourselves. The whole issue of geoengineering, spraying sulfur uh, particles in, in the atmosphere, whatever, trying to stop uh, the increase in temperature while messing up a lot of other things. Very worrying scenario, not very attractive, but a kind of emergency solution if we have to. That in itself will lead loop us back to number one, because that might very well lead to wars in the sense that if China decides to solve the climate problem like this, it might shut down the monsoon over India and thereby be a major disaster in India. And the irony here is that the reason the whole economic structure of climate policies from our normal solutions are upside down here, in terms of limiting uh, emissions of, of, of greenhouse gases. We know the problem is that it's too expensive and everyone has to agree. With geoengineering, it's the opposite. It's very cheap and it, every, every country would more or less be able to do it themselves. So it's a complete opposite problem. So this is a worrying scenario for a kind of emergency situation. Then we could try to be a little optimistic, just very briefly, and think maybe all of this could work more or less just as, as pressures on the system for saying, if, if you don't do anything in another way, we get to this. So maybe we can imagine that we managed to change the format of the international structure so we got a more powerful organization than the one we have now, with a much stronger secretary general, with a more lean decision making, and so on. So maybe after a manifest failure of negotiation after negotiation and some kind of climate 9-11, we could suddenly come around to changing the structures. What a climate 9-11 would look like, I used to always give the example of collapse of, of the Antarctic uh, uh, ice sheets and sudden rays of, of, of uh, um, the levels of the sea. But on the other hand, you could also as we are now witnessing here, uh, think about more local effects. It's been very clear in the US that weather effects have actually been driving the ups and downs of policy. So this would, is how I used to, to end this talk before I got even more pessimistic. Uh, that I would say that my two arms of the argument here of the military preparations coming out of one kind of securitization and the kind of top-down imposition of solutions by a few countries on the other is what makes us then think and therefore act within normal bounds as a solution. Or maybe not totally normal if you want to stay with uh, theories of how to get to uh, solutions internationally, then most likely we would have a mix of uh, the inclusive formats of negotiations, and then some kind of smaller group of countries. We know that the two biggest emitters do 40%, the seven largest negotiation parties 80%. Clearly, a very few countries would be able to agree on quite a lot. But still, now comes the super pessimistic part as, uh, at the end, saying, but this is not enough. It's quite clear that if you look at what we have agreed already, uh, this is a way of saying this is what how, how uh, um, emissions are going to look if we just continue uh, without changing anything. These are the, oops, these are the policies that uh, countries are already in, in principle adapting. This is where we get to with Paris uh, agreement uh, in what the countries have promised. The next one is what the countries, some countries have said we might do if others also do and so on. And then clearly, it's not enough. I mean, if you have to get to uh, the, the least cost pathway, we have to get it all the way down there. A very, very different curve. So basically, we are not on target at all. Um, and the, this gets more and more 
difficult to imagine a solution to as time goes by. This one is just a diagram of saying the longer we wait, the steeper the curve is going to be. That if you look at the, 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 the first one, uh, it is uh, if, if we, um, or if you take them from below in a sense, uh, that is the kind of, of change we would have to implement in the case that we started doing something dramatic now, and then you can move up, and it will get unrealistically steep if we do it late. So this gets me to my final part of saying, where are we now politically? It seems that the urgency has arrived. And this raises very clearly an issue that is it's, of course, striking to be discussing it here in this country now, after some of the statements from the Prime Minister in, in recent days. The tension between democracy and climate policies is something we have discussed very little, which is actually strange, because among the many costs of climate change, the biggest might be the political cost. As I already hinted, international action is likely to happen in a much more top-down, imposed manner, not the one where every country has to agree. And if you reach a decision like that, how are you going to carry them through domestically? How are you going to deal with that in countries where people are going to yellow vest-like saying, no, we don't want that? What are we, like we saw with Southern Europe and, and economic reforms and so on, how is that going to be internationally decided policy to be carried through, not very democratically? So, the later we get to decisive action, the more abrupt and painful the remedies will be. We don't discuss that because both sides have a reason to avoid it. Obviously, the anti-climate policy people don't want to depict the picture of saying, what if people suddenly wake up and say, we don't believe any of the denial stuff anymore. Now we really demand that our politicians solve this. This is, of course, not on the agenda. On the other hand, climate activists don't like to discuss the possibility that action is actually going to be so painful that it will cost a price for democracy. It's much more popular to depict win-win scenarios where the green policies will also generate more jobs, etc., etc. But it seems to me that this will be painful. And the bigger issue is what happens when the system eventually gets around to acting on this at a time when it is almost too late. And the only route available is really the emergency one. So far, most of the questioning comes in the sense that Extinction Rebellion and groups like that are being depicted as anti-democratic. They aren't, obviously, at the moment, they are hyper-democratic, but surely, as the emergency sensibility widens, we will see extreme groups. We will see climate terrorism. Surely we will. There will be fringes of that movement that will take extreme measures. That's the small problem. The big problem is that what happens when the system gets around to saying, now we want to prove to our electorate that we can solve the problem. We are the state, and the state is here to protect you. Now we'll protect you, and we'll use whatever measure it takes. That will be much more dangerous for democracy. So on this very happy note, uh, I, I think the conclusion is that democracy is really, really under pressure. It will be under short-term pressure by the action, and it will be under big, big pressure when we get around to acting. Of course, it's very likely that we don't act at all, and everything just goes to hell. But now I'm doing the, the semi-positive semi scenario that we actually act upon it. In that one, we have a big problem, whether we could do that democratically, or whether we will have emergency institutions internationally and emergency procedures domestically that are actually very unattractive, but maybe necessary. Thank you. I'd like to invite the three of you to join me. So it is a bit hard to pick up on that happy <laughs> point. But I first wanted to give a chance to our two uh, other participants, Jess and Olivia, to, uh, to, to share with us what they have to say and their perspectives in whatever way they choose. Yeah, wow, okay. <laughs> Over to um, you, Jess. Yeah, I mean, wow, there's a lot to, I mean, there's a lot to, unpack. 
in there. Um, and I think it's probably worth starting just by talking about what does what do some of these big, very world, international, institutional, systemic moves look like um, at a city level? Mm. And I think, I mean, today, I, I could pull a myriad of examples um, out of some of the work that the city of Sydney has done, not just um, after having declared a climate emergency, um, but the body of work that, you know, the city has behaved based on the evidence now for the best part of 15 years. Um, and, you know, as the raving inner city lunatic, um, yet again, we as a council unanimously decided to give another $300,000 to bushfire relief funding, in addition to the $200,000 we gave a few months ago for the drought, in addition to the $350,000 we gave to the floods. And there's no clear end in sight about that. And it does really question where political power should be because we hold a hell of a lot of responsibility where the people who um, have to think about what happens in an emergency, we, we're on the front line, but we have very little power to take action that can prevent these large systemic, systemic moves from happening. Um, I think the the opposite of I mean, I, I, my observation, you know, I've, I've been in politics all of, you know, three minutes slash three years. And my observation of political systems and political bureaucracies and the way things actually happen is that they're fundamentally incompatible with nature. And they're fundamentally incompatible with dealing with with risk and high risk. Um, and they're not very good at being adaptable and dexterous. I'd argue that local government probably does a better job and is much more dexterous than the other levels of government. Um, but from a systemic point of view, if we are to have, and I, I can't even talk about climate anymore, we need to talk about resilience and we need to talk about equity and we need to talk about who really loses and who really suffers. And what it looks like on the ground, particularly within metropolitan Sydney, is urban heat. When you're talking about conflict and people going to war, we've seen the boxer, the boxer stats in terms of crime and mental health and conflict as they play out on the streets of Western Sydney. And it's because it gets between nine to 12 and nine to 12 degrees hotter in parts of Western Sydney. And generally where it gets hotter are where people are least able to afford air conditioning um, and have least levels of social cohesion and vulnerability. So the, the risk that we as the inner city lunatics have to be very aware of is that we don't live in isolation within the city of Sydney, of Western Sydney, we operate as, a, as an organism. There are codependencies. So when people aren't doing well in Western Sydney as a result of these very extreme conditions and the equity worsens, um, that has implications for us as well. So we have a responsibility to make not just our 26 square kilometres resilient, but we have a responsibility to make sure um, that the broader, the broader system can be resilient to, and you can't do that, I don't believe, without an empowered citizenry. Um, yeah, I, I could go on. I could talk about insurance. I could talk about air quality. I could talk about a range of things. But I think at its core, it, it's structural change. And at this, at this point in history, we have a choice, but for not much longer. That's right. Olivia, what about you? Um, so obviously, much of that talk wasn't especially cheerful. Um, and <laughs> but rightly so. And I think uh, for young people, that's really scary. And to see democracy spoken about 
in a way of it's about to be under threat. Um, and one thing that leads me to grapple with is how do we deal with this in a way that empowers people? Because if time's running out, then it's people that need to act. And if the government isn't doing enough, how do we make them do more? How do we do more? So one thing I'd like to talk about tonight is how do we make the discourse about democracy one that's about saving what we do have? And the fact that we have people striking on the streets, the fact that we're seeing market forces shift right now and investing shift so much, is a reminder we do still live in a democracy and the, and the way people are dealing with the current situation is democratic. But our government is weirdly becoming less and less democratic, uh, trying to impose sanctions on uh, activists and trying to restrict the market by subsidizing coal and limiting other industries. So how do we prioritize democracy? Because we are in a dangerous place, but I don't think all hope is lost. And so that leads me to the other thing which I think is key to talk about, um, which is what can an individual do? Things like this are they're so large scale and they're so terrifying. How does an individual citizen work within a climate emergency? What can we all do if things are so dire and so catastrophic? Where do we go from there? And so I think that would be my main lead in to the conversation. Okay, thank you, Olivia. Um, I too wanted to um, open something which is a, a question which I might throw out to you and then open up to the floor because I think there's probably a lot of people who have a lot of things to ask and talk about tonight and then we can come back to answer it. But I did want to get us all to think also, sort of leading uh, quite well of what you just said, about the theme of actions, right? And the possibility of acting or not acting um, specifically in this country right now. Because there is something very um, strange and both tense and intense going on in Australia at the moment, which I think we all need to try and get our heads around, which is that you know, on the one hand, in, in September, the Australian Defence Force Chief General Angus Campbell makes a closed-door speech to government agencies, closed-door by invitation only, warning of climate change's, and I quote, potential to exacerbate conflict, okay? And he meant it specifically in the, in the second way in which uh, Olia was talking about, right? Because he underlined not the direct war, but that increasing frequency of natural disasters and I quote, in the most natural disaster prone region in the world is already stretching the ADF's capabilities, mm. both with regards to disaster relief and peacekeeping missions, right? That was in September, right? You can be quite sure that the ADF is preparing actively today as we speak and has been over the last month, okay? So again, this is not about responding to an existing conflict, but precisely because when you have millions of people or thousands or even just 500 that you have to start to move, okay, the potential for disorder, which is the army's business, mm. is stretched to break point. So the ADF is preparing massively, right? Um, and I'm, you stole my line, but I was the one who wanted. <laughs> I too am happy to be the raving inner city lunatic who makes the link between these fires and climate change, obviously. So the point is that the need to act and, and prepare is now recognized in government as part of the business of government, right? Not as some um, new thing that needs to happen. It's integrated in the, in the bureaucracy itself. And then, of course, that's on one hand. On, on the other hand, we can only contrast that with the Prime Minister's speech, right, on November the 1st, where he moots the possibility not only of cracking down on demonstrators, but on, of outlawing boycotts, right? Now, the first one is the oldest form of activism in the world, right? Um, but it's a way, let's remind ourselves what it is if we're talking about actions and civil disobedience. It's a way of seizing the public space in order to redefine what the public thing is, the thing that should bring us all together. So when Extinction Rebellion is you know, pointing our, our attention to the fact that this thing cannot be ignored, it is about redefining what politics is about, that public thing that should bring us all together. This is what demonstrators have always done, and it's happening now with that uh, articulation. But the second one is, of course, stranger, right? The boycott business, because boycotts are an economic, are an economic instrument, of course, right? Um, they, they, they're tailored, in fact, to one of the two pillars of the economy, which is demand, right? Um, so uh, that means that the government is willing to actually intervene 
in the economy in a top-down manner, right? Contra every single liberal mantra that it's supposed to have been elected in for, right? Uh, the liberal mantra of not intervening in the economy, right? So it's a threat to use state power to intervene directly in the economy against demand, because this is about boycotts are about shaping demand and therefore public opinion, and in order to sustain supply, the other pillar of the economy, the supply of the resources industry, right? Um, so, and in fact, of course, as you all have noted, it's not a little ironic that its main target is called market forces, right? So the, the liberal government wants to rein in market forces. So in other words, what I'm trying to draw out is this is something more than inaction. It's, it's, it's more than inaction. It's an attempt to prevent action of the kinds that you were trying to explore, right? It's an event to actively top, use the power of the state to come down on the possibility of bottom-up action, which is what these boycotts were about, right? Um, so yeah, I mean, I wonder, I was wonder, as I was preparing for this, I wonder if the next step is to get rid of fire ratings, right? Uh, given that we won't have to hear that it's the most catastrophic that we, you know, that New South Wales is, 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 is uh, is, is facing that. If you get rid of fire ratings, then we won't know. Um, so anyways, considering that tension and that change begins with taking ideas seriously, this is what I wanted to ask our speakers. But if it's okay with our speakers, I might open the floor as well so that we have a larger conversation. Um, but I'd like to ask all of us, I guess, to tell us, yeah, what would be your blueprint for action? For, sh for, for sh short circuiting this inaction and for moving us towards action. Minor, minor question. Yeah, I, like, I think you're right about the narrative. I think, um, I mean, having, you know, having cut my teeth doing the lock ons and doing the direct action um, and coming from a, like an NVDA background, I understand deeply that there is a role for um, XR and as the most recent manifestation of that, of that you know, tradition of nonviolent direct action. Um, increasingly I question whether it's working. Um, is it creating and setting up uh, a narrative that is further polarising people? I don't think it's working. Um, and personally, Okay, I guess the pivot that I'm trying to make and the mindful, I guess the tactic that I'm increasingly trying to use is to really understand where people are coming from at a deep emotional level and understanding how the Scott Morrisons of the world are so able to be able to tap into fear. And whether it's the right or wrong thing to do, I would love to imagine a world where you could have mass mobilisation through inspiration, I'm increasingly becoming doubtful whether or not that's going to cut it. Um, so the conversations that I'm increasingly having are about what people want to talk about, which is the, the price of their property. Um, and reminding them, and well, but in all, and, and this, is the, this is how we're getting to government and saying, well, <laughs> After the, you know, when they, all these houses burn down, will they become insurable? Will the insurance company insure them again? And if our national obsession is about property, and even 30% of people think that they own a $1.2 million property and the value of that property is nothing overnight because no one will insure it, I wonder if that will be enough to mobilise action because we're not talking about climate change anymore. We're talking about a fundamental undermining of economic, social, cultural systems and maybe, maybe that's the way. I just think, and along the lines of that, it's, climate change does not have to be a political issue and the reason our government's getting so defensive is because it never was but it became one. And the individual can do so much and we do need to adapt and it's a combination of those things. So I just wanted to say as a closing remark, please keep doing what you can, do not lose hope, stay positive and use that positivity to be practical. Don't just be hopeful for hopeful's sake, do practical things with that hope. Um, individuals are powerful. Yep. I, I mean, I'm optimistic that, I mean, you know, the most risk-adverse conservative among us, i.e. the insurance industry, um, 
they get it. And mm. they've got the data and they've been saying it for years. And like it or not, as soon as your house becomes uninsurable, government must respond. Council is, we've been asking, I asked for an equivalent um, climate risk disclosure thing to happen. So I'm, I'm optimistic that the, if, if, the, if the insurers are onto it, then they'll drag everyone else kicking and streaming. So what I'm hearing is that despite your pessimism, you're optimistic. What I'm also hearing is that we don't, what day. <laughs> we don't need to be hopeful to act. And what I'm also wanting to remind you is that there are cracks in the system. If the, mm. if the dialogue is becoming so tense, this is, a, this is a battle to be waged in all possible ways, and the system has to, pressure has to be put on the system before it's too late. We have to continue to put pressure. On that note, I would like you to, help me, to join me in thanking our panelists. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.